What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the podcast today, we have Rachel Dory. Rachel is just absolutely wonderful. You're going to love her. Dan, what'd you think? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We, I feel like we were a broken record when we said this, but we talked for an hour or so, and it seemed like we could have gone for forever more. She's just a really insightful person, tons of uh, background and a young age. We talked about scouting, player development, uh, her classwork, uh, getting her master's. There was just a lot to dive into. So a lot of information in this episode. What would you take away, Greg? She knows her stuff big time. Uh, and it's, it's great because she's clearly been working with some very, very bright minds and she's a bright mind herself. So just being able to dump all of that in a very short amount of time was pretty cool, uh, especially you know, working with the Leafs, working with the Devils. I know she's been working with both the men's and the women's game. So seeing the differences there was cool too. So really enjoyed this episode. Without further ado, our episode with Rachel Dory. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, pretty pumped. It's it's not your your regular hockey podcast that I'd go on. So it's it's nice to do something different. Yeah, we're a little nerdy, I would say. Uh, yeah, Hockey IQ podcast. Definitely nerdier than the average just shooting the breeze. I feel like my podcast is a little nerdy too, though. So I guess like it kind of matches. Yeah, but you guys are getting into like the CBA sometimes and all, all that stuff. I feel like this is a little more technical and, and really getting into the mental Different side type of the of game. Technical. Yeah, yeah, definitely a, a a different way of looking at it. I would do that stuff publicly, but first of all, I have to find someone that would be able to to kind of help me out with that. And I just I think that it's it's easier to find someone to break down technicalities of the game and then I just save all of this fun stuff for like my masters that I'm going to make people pay me for <laughs> beautiful well we'll have you back on when that masters comes out and we'll uh see the differences in your thinking yeah oh, well, sounds good before we get too far why don't you uh tell our listeners a little bit about your background like you said your master's program but maybe start from the beginning and, and how you've gotten to where you are now short and sweet yeah so no, don't uh, do short and sweet. I went to school at Laurentian in Sudbury um, and I did sports business and I was the uh, video coach for the Sudbury Wolves in the OHL. Um, so that's kind of where I got my first like taste in, in working in hockey. Um, and then I graduated, I was writing some stuff for the athletic, um, and attending like Leafs development camp, which is where I met Daryl Belfry. Um, so I did some stuff with them for a couple months and then, um, Ray Shiro called me one day and the devils hired me to do literally everything under the sun um and then after that I just kind of decided I'm gonna go back to school I want to get a master's and 
Um, originally, I was looking at either law school or an MBA just because um, maybe be an agent. But then I realized that like there's so many people that have those degrees that like they don't really do anything and they're like six figures to get. And the school said, hey, well, if you want to do research in hockey, we'll give you a master's of science and analytics and uh, we'll pay you to come to our school. So I'm going to the best sports science school in, the, in Canada and I get to study sports science and analytics and I have not paid a dime for it. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And um, I'm, I would say about a third of the way done. Uh, so starting to really get into the research part of it. And uh, it's been really, really good so far. I have a fantastic supervisor and a fantastic lab that like ideas get bounced back and forth and using cross sports stuff. And um, yeah, it's just been, it's been awesome so far. That's awesome. Well, can you give us a little more background into the kind of the project that you're working on and may- maybe just what the ambitions are behind it? I'm assuming you're a go-getter. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody like volunteers to work in hockey and do their masters at the same time. Like I feel like that's maybe a little bit insane. Um, but essentially what I'm doing with my masters is there's a huge hole and there's a ton of inefficiencies in how decisions are made, whether it be like player drafting um, and especially in player development. So I'm looking essentially to build something that is an evaluation tool for um, how teams are a drafting and be developing their prospects. And so from that, what I want to do is build like a development model that a team um, can use. And it's not like a cookie cutter thing. It's more of like a holistic thing. So when you're looking at a player, you need to look at the off ice stuff. You need to look at the mental stuff, obviously the physical attributes and, and then their on ice stuff as well. Um, and so building something out that maximizes um, their off ice growth as well as their on ice growth, because what we're finding is players who um, aren't developed off ice in terms of like maturity and habits and, and just like the ability to be a good person don't hit their potential on the ice. And so it's developing a model, first of all, identifying what teams are historically weak and then developing something that um, would help aid that. That's kind of what I'm thinking right now. Who's, who's good? Who's bad? Give it to us straight. Um, okay, so I've broken it down by like position. And so Anaheim is fantastic at drafting and developing defensemen historically the Leafs have been terrible at everything, but lately they've improved marketably. Vancouver is uh, good at drafting, poor at development. And I'm sure that that's now going to change now that Judd Brackett is no longer there. Edmonton is poor at both. (laughs) Carolina and LA. So like Eric, since Eric Tulski basically went in, Carolina's draft strategy changed. And you could see it in the data. Um, they've been fantastic. LA under Mike Fuda and Mark Unetti have a fantastic drafting and development program, um, which is why their cupboards are like always stacked. And um, they always are pumping out players that like somebody like Sean Walker, let's say. Um, so they might take a little longer to develop, but um, they have a consistent track record of, of developing successful players, especially from the later rounds. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are some that, uh, that stand out so far. Without incriminating any teams, like what in broad strokes are some of the differences that allow a team to be strong and developing players? 
it's it's hard because that is a lot of subjective stuff so that requires like delphi studies whereas like i can just run data and be like okay this player's played like this many games and like this many points and um quality of competition like that kind of thing um so if you're evaluating strictly on numbers then like you would use those metrics but when you actually go and talk to teams um and look at their staffs like you have a team like toronto who has a very vast development staff so you can tell that they're investing in development then you have a team like new jersey who um has like two or three development people and they rarely see their prospects and they don't run like on ice stuff as much and you can tell that in the numbers it comes out like they're obviously putting out way less um and then you look at like i'm trying to figure out anaheim right now because they're not very good at developing forwards but the amount of defensemen they produce is like by far the best in the league so it's it's you got to be able to like interview them and and from there you can kind of pull stuff out of them like okay what are they doing that maybe other teams that i've spoken to aren't doing so like edmonton i think one of the things that like stuck out about edmonton was like the amount of times like a player went up and down um or like inconsistently played um has been like a huge thing and obviously like jesse puyari is, is a huge example of that um so yeah like it's much harder to find out like what teams are doing, which is going to be probably like the bulk of my research is like, why is it this way? And so it's talking to teams. Do you think that a team like Anaheim, for example, um, I'm trying to think how to best phrase this, you know, they're bread and butter. They're really good at developing defensemen. And those are assets that they can move. They have moved uh, for other assets. Like should they focus on being really good at that one thing and then, kind of like using that to leverage other parts of their organization or improving their weaknesses, maybe at the expense of like strengthening their already extremely strong strength. Yeah. Like, okay. So I think that like Anaheim's clearly, and they're like the best example, right? Anaheim's clearly demonstrated they can develop defensemen, right? You look at uh, Cam Fowler, Josh Manson, Sammy Vatnin, who they've moved, um, I'm trying to think of like a few others. I, they've got Drysdale coming who is already good to begin with. Right. And what I think they should do is, is look at what they're doing that has led them to success in developing these defensemen, because they've clearly shown they can develop them and apply some of those concepts to developing forwards and like failing that. I think that while you look to implement those things, you use your position of strength to deal for um young forwards like there's no reason anaheim shouldn't have gotten way more for the defenseman that they had i just don't think they dealt them at the same time and that's another inefficiency that probably needs to be looked at is okay if you're good if you can demonstrate that you can efficiently draft and develop then you should also have a mechanism where you can trade those players for other assets I'm curious if this is like one person's really good at developing defensemen and that's what they focus on and that's why they're good. I mean, obviously you've talked to these programs and teams about this, but it always seems like, okay, there's someone really good at it. Suddenly that organization becomes very good at that area. Like the classic example would be San Jose. I forget who their goalie coach was, but Kaprasov, Toscala, Nabokov, all those guys. Is, is there something in there with like the people running it or is it more of like a systematic thing? Um, see, I haven't looked a ton at goalies yet. I have mainly focused on, um, position players, but goalies are definitely something that like, I'm definitely want to take a look at. And it's funny you bring up San Jose because that's like one team at the top of my list where I'm like, Oh, how, like, 
how do they produce all these goalies? And then now they're stuck with like Martin Jones, who admittedly like was drafted by LA and like, they just couldn't find room for him. So he goes to San Jose, he was good. And now they've wrecked him. Like, was that something San Jose did or was that a Martin Jones thing? So it's, it's kind of interesting to see, like one of the things I'm looking at is either teams who are really good at developing that are now poor or teams that were really poor at developing that are now good, what has changed? And so I kind of laid out like with the Leafs, what changed and Carolina, what changed? It'll be interesting to see what happens in LA because Mike Feud is no longer there, but he was there for the bulk of like this scouting year. Like, I don't think it takes a genius to draft Quentin Byfield, but I would, I would say that like he probably him and Mark Yannetti, who's still there probably had a hand in, um, guys like Chromiak and Simon Tyvel, like those kind of players. And so there's a lot to be looked at for the goaltenders. And I'm sorry that I don't have a ton yet. I just haven't gotten there. Well, even just like Anaheim, like, is there someone in Anaheim, like you're dedicated to defensemen and he's just unbelievable. Just kind of like Detroit. Like Daryl in Toronto. <laughs> Daryl in Toronto. Yeah. Like whatever it may be is like, is it, is it more the personnel or is it more like the system and what, who puts it in place? Like I'm a, I'm a Leafs guy these days. Cause I love what Dubas does. Like when he got hired as the Marley, suddenly, Oh, my new favorite team's the, the Leafs. Cause I, I like how he runs his programs. Yeah. So I think it could be a bit of both. Right. Um, and the best example of that, um, we're going to remove Daryl because Daryl is so far and away the best skills coach in hockey that like, it's not even funny. Um, but somebody like Barb Underhill or Don Braid. Um, they are like consultants. And I think that it's, it's probably not a coincidence that their clients seem to consistently get better. Now, the fact that a team like Toronto, or I believe, I want to say either Calgary or Arizona can identify that these individuals have a knack for developing certain things and they bring them into their organization. That's a systematic thing, but you can build whatever system you want. If you don't have people who, who can execute it, it doesn't matter. So somebody like Barb Underhill, the Leafs can draft players that they think read the game well, shoot the puck well, et cetera, et cetera, but don't skate well because they know that they have Barb Underhill in their back pocket. And if she can help, Brian Boyle and Frederick Gauthier, then I'm sure that she can help Rodion Amirov and whomever else they drafted that they think may have skating as a weakness. I'm by no means saying that Amirov skating is bad. I was just using that as an example. Like they can take chances on players that we'll write maybe other teams don't. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. I want to go back kind of to the beginning here. You mentioned very like casually that uh, just like one day Ray Shiro called you up and offered you a job with the devils. Like how did that come to be? And even before that, like what's your like background to get into hockey in the first place? And and I'm going to add on this. Like, how do you plug into a team? Like someone hires you, how do you plug into them? Um, Okay. So the Ray question is actually kind of funny. Uh, I wrote a piece for the athletic. I think it's still up actually. And it was essentially like why Nico Heischer, Jesper Bratt, and Will Butcher are creating offense for the Devils. I wrote that. And John Hines saw it. Because uh, John Hines reads a ton. Like, that guy reads so much. Because he's always looking to get better. And he saw it and sent it to Ray. And was like, who is this? Bring her to me. And so then Ray is good friends with Pierre Lebrun. And Pierre Lebrun worked at The Athletic at the time. 
and it was like very near to Christmas. So we were having our athletic Christmas party back when like there was no pandemic and we were allowed to do those things. Um, Like, you know, go to the bar. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, but I guess Ray had called Pierre Lebrun and had been like, what do you know about Rachel? And Pierre said like almost nothing. But then at the athletic Christmas party, which happened to be like two days later, um, he sat down and like talked to me for like 15 or 20 minutes. And I was kind of like, whoa, this is cool. Like Pierre Lebrun thinks enough of me that he wants to sit here and talk to me. And then literally the next day, I got an email from Ray being like, um, hey, like I read your story. Um, I think I still have the email somewhere. I'd love to chat with you um, about the New Jersey Devils. Um, I'm the GM of the Devils and here's my phone number. And I said, okay, like I'm available like tonight, tomorrow, like basically whatever. Um, And he called me like literally 10 minutes later and we chatted for like two hours. And then uh, the next day, I went down to um, Sportsnet to to see one of my friends who was who was working there, and uh, Ray called me while we were sitting there having lunch and said, "Okay, I've I've booked you a flight. Um, you're coming tomorrow." And I was like, "Oh, what?" So I got my itinerary. I flew down. Um, I met everyone. Um, played the Blackhawks like the next night, and then Christmas Eve they offered me the job, and then kind of. I had to get, cause I'm Canadian. So I had to get a visa and the lady there, Marie, like that woman is a wizard and I still love her. She got my visa in like three days. Like it was ridiculous. Um, so I moved down. I waited till January or February 1st. And then I moved down just for like ease of like, I wanted to spend my birthday at home kind of thing. Like I'd already had plans to go to LA and whatever. And so then I, I moved down, but it's, it's interesting because like, I went from not really knowing what I was going to do on December 20th to like starting work December 26th. And so it was like, all of a sudden I'm not watching the world juniors for fun. Like I'm actually like watching it with a purpose. And, and so I think because it was like my first hockey job plugging in, like wasn't that difficult because I was at the time I had just turned 21 or I turned 21, I was turning 22. And um, I was like, wow, like, this is really cool. Like, to give you an idea, like, I said yes without even, like, thinking about it, which, like, in hindsight, I would never advise anyone to do that with, like, any job. You should always seek counsel and and seek advice, like, from your parents. But I was just so excited that, like, I just said yes. And so I think plugging in for me was pretty easy. I think that, like, anyone who tells you that you watch the same game after you get employed is is lying. Like you lose your fandom. I still like born and bred like a Leafs fan, but like I don't have the same affinity for them that I used to. And that's because like working in hockey, you kind of lose, like you cheer for players now more than I cheer for a team. Am I going to be happy if Toronto wins a cup? Like, yeah, I am. I think it's good for the game. But yeah, it was actually pretty easy to plug in. It was easier than I thought. It's crazy. I'm, I'm the same way. People always ask me, who's your favorite NHL team? And I have to pull out my wallet and get the old discover card out. The NHL card. Mm-hmm. There's the NHL logos. I'm like, I just enjoy the game itself. And like the individual players. I hope you excited. don't actually do that though. Seriously. I do. It's, it's funny. It's people are like, who's your favorite? And I'm like, boom, I don't have a favorite. Like, but it's like now, like I've formed relationships with like players in New Jersey, for example. And like, I root for those players. So like, I don't know if, 
I don't know if this is obvious, but like I'm a big Damon Severson fan. <laughs> and I think that like once you kind of get yourself in the industry, you meet people and they're just people to you. They're not like these famous, right. like if I ran into Sidney Crosby on the street five years ago, I probably would have passed out. But like now that I've worked in hockey and I've seen him multiple times and like almost headbutted him by accident once, like I'm not starstruck by them anymore. So it's like, it's not really, it, it really removes, like when you go behind the curtain, it really removes that kind of like fandom side of it. For sure. Okay. One question. And I'm sensitive to the fact that, you know, you sign NDAs and so I'll leave it vague, but I'm curious, like generally speaking, when one leaves an organization and joins another or doesn't whatever like how much intellectual capital is that team worried that you would bring to another team so like let's say you were a scouting director for one team and you left and joined another like would that the first team have a good reason to be like this is terrible for us because that person has just like insider information that you know they are they were privy to like what's that like so a lot of times what you'll see is if someone let's I'll use your scouting director example. So a scouting director is employed by a team and then they leave before the draft for another team. Teams can make it so that they can't actually participate in the draft and that kind of mitigates it. But there's this kind of understanding that like you take your intellectual property with you, but you don't take like any, but you can take right. your own list with you because that's your own work. Yeah. But like, you don't take the people below you's list. You don't take the team list. You don't take like all this stuff, but it's also hockey and like everyone talks and everyone knows everything, which is how like teams are able to predict what's going to happen above them. Um, So like, if you watch like the devils put out this thing, this video for the draft and like, you can see Tom Fitzgerald say Anaheim's taking the defenseman, which is obviously Drysdale. So like they know each other well enough that like, everybody knows kind of like what's happening. Um, but there's kind of like this, this thing, like you don't take stuff that isn't yours. Right. So like when I left New Jersey, I had stuff that I had done that like I, I have, I'm not going to publish it anywhere, mm. but like it's helping me with my research. And like, I wouldn't take it. If I moved to another team, I would not give them that stuff. Right. So it's kind of like this thing where it's like, you don't, yeah. You don't do that. It's it's you separate it. Um, but yeah, there are times like Bill Armstrong, who went from, I believe, St. Louis to uh, Arizona. He wasn't allowed to participate in the draft, which is probably how they ended up drafting Mitchell Miller. But um, it's just things like that. that You kind of like everyone has this rule of like a respect thing. So kind of get into the nitty gritty and start getting uh, nerdy with us. I'm curious what your thoughts are on lineup maximization and making the most of what you actually have uh, at your disposal. Okay. So are you talking like, so I, so I'll, I'll give up my bias, which is I like to find pairs. So like if I'm doing forward lines, I want to find two guys that are good together and maybe a third guy, just like Zach Hyman who goes and four checks and gets the puck for my guys. Okay. Yeah. Um, First of all, I'm a huge like optimization person. Um, like I remember sounds like in, a personal life thing too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I no, do noticing not, the wall behind you, you're you're well uh, equipped to organize. Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> you can see I have like various shelving units and like a shoe rack that's very like it's color coded. <laughs> um, any like I think 
optimization, you've got to be careful, right? Because like at the end of the day, you're still working with human beings, right? And there's emotional things that play that, that have to be considered. So you can't just like be sitting there with math, right? But I'll give you an example. Like when I was asked what I think the line should be, and this was like my second day in New Jersey, I was getting asked this. I'm like, I don't think you should trust me yet. No, actually, this wasn't even my second day. This was like the second day of the interview process. He was like, here are my magnets. Like every coach has the magnets with like the names on them. Here are my magnets. He like took them off the board and he was like, make me lines. So I make the lines and like they ask for like your rationale. But then when I actually got there and I was hired and I had access to like all manner of like really cool things, they would ask the same question. And I would I would say like, okay, um, you don't want to put like three shooters on a line or like three puck carriers. So like this is a perfect example is you don't have Mitch Marner and William Nylander on the same line. Cause they both like to carry the puck, right? You need to have a balance on, on every line and on every D pairing. So like you don't have two racehorse rush defensemen playing on the same line because then like you're going to get yourself in trouble. Like you wouldn't play Quinn Hughes with Kale McCarr is essentially what I'm saying. Right. And so for me, like the way I look at it is like, um, I don't know, you can probably go back and find it, but like at one point, um, Marcus Johansson was playing at a certain position on the power play. And the reason Marcus Johansson was playing there, um, and it raised a few eyebrows, um, was the fact that he had completed the most passes to the slot on the power play, you know, for the, the devils, like while I was there. So it would make sense that he is on the power play you need someone who can put the puck in spots that are dangerous. And so it's things like that. And then when it came time to do lines, it was like, okay, who should Marcus Johansson play with? Well, probably someone who can shoot the puck. So again, we go, we go there or like, why? Like the, the Taylor Hall, Kyle Palmieri thing, like they stayed together because they were so far and away the best, like for Nico to play with. But what a lot of people don't realize is that like Nico Heischer and Jesper Bratt actually had a ton of chemistry. And it's because uh, Bratter likes to carry the puck a lot. And Nico is a very much like a get the puck, give it back, move to an open area, win a battle. Um, he's it, it's kind of one of those things. So they're able to, to work well together. So I think you need to find playing styles that mesh well together and then you put the puzzle pieces in. And if right. it, it works, it works. And if it doesn't, then like you move it around. How do you quantify chemistry? Um, and then is, is there a personality fit to it as well? Like, do guys ask for it? So, obviously, we wanted to definitely answer Dan's question on the numbers, but also, like, the qualitative side of, like, oh, I want to play with so-and-so. Like, there's no way that Hall didn't ask to play with Eichel. Uh, yeah, that was a demand, actually. <laughs> um, I will play with Eichel or yeah. I will not sign here. Right. Um, but, I, like – quantifying chemistry is actually something that's that's very difficult and um i think there are definitely like sport logic um can do that um there are different like passing mechanisms that you can see but i think right now um quantifying chemistry is essentially like it basically boils down to like how good are they in the offensive zone so like passes completed um how many scoring chances do they generate that they're both involved in um like that kind of thing and so i think that there's there's something there but we really haven't been able to quantify like chemistry from from that perspective um unless you just want to take like goal scored scoring chances created but like at the same time like 
Daniel and Henrik Sedin didn't have the most goal-scoring chances in the entire league, but I don't think it's a debate that they had the best chemistry in the league, right? And so I think that's kind of like Greg's, that goes to Greg's question, which is like, do guys ask to play together? And like, is that potentially um, something that, that can be looked at? And I think the Sedins are a perfect example of that. If you look at the Sedins and Burroughs, um, they were fantastic together, but the Sedins and somebody else may not have been as good. So then you need to look at what Alex Burroughs does. Um, or I think another perfect example, which nobody seems to understand why it worked is Dupuis Crosby Kunitz. They neither one of those gentlemen had any business playing with Sidney Crosby based on caliber, but they could read the game. They knew where Sid needed them to be. They went, they did their stuff, they played off each other really well. And when you develop a friendship with someone, like it's it's easier to play with them. And and like guys are buddies, but like Marner and Matthews, like they're buddies off the ice, like they're really close. And so it's you're gonna have natural chemistry. That is why. I think that's why Severson and Smith will go well together because I think they're going to be friends off the ice. It's the same way that like the Sedins have played their whole lives together. And so naturally, the more you play with someone and the more time you spend with them off the ice, you understand how they think. And if you understand how someone thinks, regardless of whether it's in a hockey context or not, you are more likely to generate chemistry with them. Like I know a perfect example I can give you kind of like maybe that's like not hockey, but um, I play, when I was playing hockey, I had a teammate that I also played soccer with. And uh, we were both like high level at both. And um, we found that when we played together in either sport, that the, it, the, the team benefited because we had the chemistry and, and we understood how each of us thought. And so our coach decided uh, in hockey, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to throw these two together. And, and we had asked, we said like, listen, like we think it could be something. And like, that was the year that like her and I finished like one, two in scoring in the league. And it was literally because we just had chemistry because we'd known each other that long and we, we'd had experience with each other. I, I actually have a similar story. So I had uh, two teammates. I had literally played hockey with since Pee Wee. So Pee Wee, Bantam high school, eight years together. Um, yeah. Just like, I don't even need to look anymore. 11th on the team in points. No, I'm just kidding. Well, we're still we're all we're still one, two, and three in the all-time oh, high school scoring books. But relax. it's funny because like, okay, so like I had a, my one of my best friends, and like even to this day, like I'm probably like not even probably. Charity told me like, I'm going to be in her wedding. Like that's how close we are. We played hockey from major peewee to minor midget. Uh, so like four years but off the ice she went through a, a personal tragedy um the first year we had we played together we had met and I basically kind of like stuck through it the whole time with her and we built up this like obviously like very good friendship and because she was a goalie it wasn't the same but our coach noticed like when I was on the power play that the handoffs with our power play defensemen were not going well and so I said listen like I just need you to trust me on this. And this was like, I think this might've been major Bantam. Uh, I go, trust me on this one. I think her and I can, can get the handoff. Right. Like you just, you got to trust me here. And he was like, all right. Like, I don't like it though. Cause like you're a forward, but I was playing the point too. So it was like, we did the four forwards thing and the handoffs nice and smooth. Like we never, ever had an issue. And it was because like 
we could tell by eye contact what was going to happen. And she knew where I wanted the puck and I knew like what was comfortable for her. So it was, it's one of those things where if you have that off ice, it is far easier to have on ice chemistry. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Personal experience seeing it uh, as a coach as well. Um, going slightly backwards though, you, you mentioned you played soccer and uh, I picked up soccer in college, uh, University of Akron, fortunately won the national championship when I was there as a freshman. So I kind of seared into my mind how much fun those games were. I'm curious of how you see soccer relating to hockey. I do it on my Twitter all the time, of like pulling some soccer clips and the movement and different things like that. But uh, there's so many similarities for me and I'm curious to see what you think as well. Just like, the movement patterns are the same, it's just on just a much bigger scale. So it's just a little bit slower. So you can really pick up on it. Yeah. Like I think, um, so I'm a European, uh, specifically a German and, uh, anybody who knows anything about Germans knows that soccer is uh mandatory. And so I basically, um, my dad said like, sometimes I'd run around with like a hockey stick in my hand and a soccer ball at my feet. So like, I'd literally be doing both things at once. It sucks that, like, I guess, like, the bulk of my life was gymnastics. So, like, I never got the chance to play, like, at the highest level I could with soccer because arguably, like, I was – I don't even think arguably. Like, I was a better soccer player than I was a hockey player. And I think playing soccer and and learning it from such a young age, especially, like, the German way, it helped me because I was able to see things. And it's all about patterns. Like, you'll hear Daryl Belfry, and he'll talk about – pattern recognition and um just being able to recognize like certain spots on the ice and what they mean and and geographical components of things and and if and somebody's perception and the action that's associated with it which is something I'm doing in school too I'm I'm actually in a perception and action class um and it's all about like brain processing so i think if you grow up playing soccer and i've said this uh to one of my players at york He's a fantastic hockey player. Like he's got all of the skill you could imagine. Like it's it's insane how much skill he has. He can't read the game to save his life. So I told him, I said, I don't even want you to pick up a hockey stick. I just want you to go play soccer. And that's because it's 11 on 11, but realistically it's 10 on 10 because you've got two keepers. And so it's essentially, you've got double the players that you would in a hockey in a similar amount of space. But the difference is, is they don't have the stick apparatus to like take away the passing lanes and you can skate faster than you can run. Um, but in terms of closing in on people, um, the the two one two four check is the Gagan press. Like that's what it's adapted from. And we talked about this on on my podcast. Like that's that's the swarm is literally just the Gagan press, but hockey version. Um, Gay clop. Hey. I am currently ha- like I have clop socks um, from uh, the major league socks. So, I mean, I think with soccer, like it helps to recognize patterns on a bigger scale so that when pressure's coming to you, when you're playing hockey and you have less time, um, you understand still that the, the pattern recognition is very similar. So you, you understand what's coming and, and where the openings will be. So, like, for me, that's why I think multi-sport athletes, specifically athletes who can play soccer and hockey, are set up for success because your ability to read the play is, is, like, it's insane, which is why I think if you look 
back at scouting reports and, and whatever the case may be, and you look at European players, they might say, oh, they're soft, they're not as physical, like whatever the nonsense that's in there. But you'll notice a lot of them are like extremely smart, reads the game really well, um, sees the open space. And where does all that come from? Well, what do you think all these European kids are doing? They're playing soccer and they're playing handball. Well, what does that teach? Spatial recognition, pattern recognition, how to read the play. And so like, I think Europeans have an inherent advantage in hockey sense development because of the sports they play when they're young. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and I agree. Um, okay. Last thing I wanted to talk about, and thanks for your time. So you're working with the men and women's teams at York. I'm curious um, like what your role has been like and maybe, you know, what are your biggest takeaways from your experience so far? Like what do you hope to achieve in this role? So on. Um, okay. So the men's and women's team, it's like a bit different. So like I actually teach a hockey analytics class at York and all the students are, their big project is like, they, they track all the data for me. I do some tracking by hand because I don't trust people to track certain things, but essentially like I, I have two other people who aren't like my students per se. And like, they help me. But essentially, we get all this data and we use um, different, like we have our own game score that we've adjusted from what Dom Lustrician does. Um, we create shot maps, heat maps. Um, I'm like working on an expected goals model, but the problem is, is I figured out that you can't actually do it if none of the league has any other data. Um, so like that really sucks. Um, but I'm on the ice like Last season, I was on the ice every day for practice. I ran skill sessions um, twice a week. And I'm kind of that, like, I'm not your head coach, um, but I'm also not, like, the old guy either. Like, I'm I'm pretty, like, I know the guy said to me, like, I'm far more approachable than, like, anybody else. And, like, they know they can come to me, and I'm not going to sugarcoat things, but I'm also not going to, like, tear them down. Like, I'm actually going to give them valuable information. Um, and with the girls, I've, I felt like with the women's team, first of all, we went from 10th to nationals. So like, that's pretty good. But like, they just took to it because I was a new voice and Dan church, who's obviously he's coached the Canadian Olympic team. Like he's, he's fantastic coach and fantastic person. Um, But it's just a new voice. And so for me, I I felt like they really took to that. And uh, a lot of them, like I've, I've, I've remained friends with, and um, it's yet to be determined if I will be back with the hockey program just because of various things going on in my life. But yeah, just like, the on ice things, um, analytics skills, um, and also like just using the contacts I have to try and, and help uh, these players out like after they're graduating. So like a lot of the guys want to play pro and um, I try and leverage the people that I know in Europe um, to try and help them there. So for me, I think I see myself as kind of like a sounding board um, for them and someone that um, they know that I'm not going to rinse them for for making a mistake, I actually encourage mistakes. Um, where as like the head coaches aren't as open to that. Well, wrapping up here, I, I got one last question and slightly large. Uh, so take this where you want it to go, but kind of curious on how you have viewed how you view the game and kind of maybe how that's changed a little bit uh, as you've gone through the different variations of, of your career so far. Um, and then just maybe what your evaluation process and then how you like to deliver uh, that information and data to the kids and the players so they it's understand like six how to do it. 
I was going to say, that's a lot of questions and I'm a hundred percent like, how about we go one at a time and I will answer all of them for you. <laughs> okay. Deal. All right. We'll keep, we'll keep it short and sweet for each one. Uh, Perfect. Lightning round. Lightning round. Uh, how do you like to watch the game or view the game? Okay. So um, on any given day, uh, I will have two screens and, and I'll probably have two games on at once. Um, just cause like, I find that if something happens, then I can quickly go and, and rewind. But if I'm actually watching a game to analyze it, I watch it uh, and I rewind it and I'm nitpicking. I'm very rarely looking at the puck. Um, I'm looking at the people around it. I'm trying to figure out the system. And now that I have the systems down pat, I'm trying to figure out where players play within that system. If that system's successful or if it's it's good enough for that team. Um, I find that it's, it's very hard for me to just like sit back and enjoy a game unless I am very drunk. Um, so yeah, that, that is how I watch games. Um, if I'm just watching to have fun, I have to have a drink in my hand and multiple games on that way. Like I can't focus too clearly on anything. Uh, but if I'm analyzing, I'm, uh, I'm dialed in. Uh, so I definitely want to party with you. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish you were at CBJ Hack with Dan and I uh, get some beers over Brothers. I was at CBJ Hack last year. And we I didn't just go like, to Brothers. I just I, like I blended went. in. I tried to hide. <laughs> well, you did I was job, very yeah. obvious. I was the only person with a yellow hat on. And that was kind of like my sphere of like influence. Like anyone I was communicating with, I'm like, look for the yellow hat. There's no one oh, else. Oh, see, no. Like I was, Megan Chaka and I hung out quite a bit. And then I was with, uh, a couple of like Will from Scouting and like Dylan Galloway because him and I actually live in the same neighborhood, like back where my mom lives. And so I was just like sitting there, like eating brownies for dinner. So <laughs> they had some sick muffins too. <laughs> yes. Uh, Considering the, the lightning round here, um, when you're looking at players, kind of what's your evaluation process? That's tough. It depends. Uh, I evaluate junior players different than I evaluate NHL players uh, just because if you're in the NHL and you're not 23 years old, like you're still developing. Right. So I'm not going to evaluate Jamie Drysdale the same way that I'm going to evaluate Morgan Riley. Like that's just not fair because it's it, Morgan Riley's not really going to develop anymore. Whereas like Jamie Drysdale is just at the, like he's a baby. Um, so for me, I like, I like to look at just some of the, the simple categories. So like, skating and within skating i'll look at uh straightaway speed agility uh balance edge work um that kind of thing and then shooting i will look at i'll evaluate every single shot that's in their repertoire i'll look at their release point i'll look at where their body weight is i'll look at where their hands are on their stick uh where their hands are relative to their body um and then real realistically you can't really <laughs> measure hockey sense unless they're playing i can evaluate their skating and their shooting in practice um but over the course of gameplay i really use gameplay um to evaluate the hockey sense so uh if i can see a play are they making that play do they make the the easiest play or do they make um the tough play are they making the correct play or are they making the better play are they afraid to try things do they even see the passing lanes that they're creating it's a pretty all encompassing thing. And, and when I come away with it, I go, okay, um, where do these, the things that they're lacking, are they things that are easily improvable or things that maybe require a little more elbow grease to improve? Um, and then from there, they'll get a rating, like a, a future value projection. So, okay, this is what I project them to be. This is the likelihood of that outcome. And then what is the most likely 
role in the NHL for them. Whereas in the NHL, I do all of that same evaluation, but then it's like, okay, um, how old are they? When is the drop-off coming? It's, it's all about predicting um, where they are. And so like when you're evaluating Joe Thornton, you're looking at age curves versus like when you're evaluating Rasmus Sandin, who's like still a prospect. Where, where did that come from? And have you created it yourself or how, where, where, how did that all come to be and having a game score and an idea of the age curves and the very specifics on hand positioning, like shooting, like for me, I'm, I'm always looking at the top hand. Where's that same with passing, like guys who consistently pass well seem to have a hand that's very far away from their body. Uh, yes, that that's true. I think a mix of, I had a coach who used to play professionally um, and he really understood my love for the game and, and my thirst to like learn things as opposed to just like play hockey. Um, so growing up, I was, I was really fortunate to have that. And then um, just being able to go back and forth with Daryl, like I can text him at any given time and um, with a question related to skill. And it sometimes ends up in like a two hour phone call. And I love those. Um, but then what I'll do is, is I'll go talk to a coach and I'll say, okay, like, what do you see? Cause it's like, this is what I'm seeing. Um, and then a coach will tell me, okay, like, let's come up with an improvement path. What needs to change? Um, and, and how do we change that? And so for me, I think it's, it's with the lens of, we can't just be black and white in our evaluation of players. And I think that a lot of people are, it's like, he's good or he's bad. And like, that is not a good way to go about things. And so for me, it's, I try and, and take a look at it more holistically. What is the most important thing? And I don't know, do you, do you look when you're looking at your improvement plans, like, okay, this needs to change first and this and this, and then how do you determine that? I think it's, it's different for every player. There's no cookie cutter answer to that. Right. Like there's, there's some things that you can't change, right. You can't change how tall a player is. Uh, You can't change like their bone structure, their makeup, like, Austin Matthews and Morgan Riley are never going to be as thin as Mitch Marner. So you've got to adjust um, your expectations. And so I think some of that is managing expectations, but then you look at, you got to find the foundation, right? So if, if you look at the evaluations and, and there's a weakness in the foundation, you've got to, that's got to be the first thing that that has to improve is like, for example, if a player's shot sucks, you're not improving the hand positioning first. You need to do the foundation, which is the skating and the balance. So you can work on your shot all you want, but if you're off balance when you're shooting, I don't care how, like, you, it's not going to get better. Like, that's just not how it works. Um, and so you'll find that some of the best shooters in the NHL um, are able to do things with their feet and get their hips to do things that, that other players can't. Um, there's a reason Alex Ovechkin is not the heaviest player in the NHL, but is the best goal scorer in the history of this game. And it's something that he does with how he shoots the puck. And many goalies, I remember talking to Corey Schneider about it, and he said it's it's almost like the puck curves when Ovechkin shoots it. Like, it's just, there's something that he does. And so when I'm looking to improve upon a player, if I'm looking to improve their shot and they're off balance when they shoot, well, I have to fix the balance first so it's it's all about identifying like what the problem actually is because a lot of times people just try and i i kind of look at it as like 
the problem is the disease. And if all you do is treat the symptoms, you're never actually going to treat the disease. Right. And so for me, like with the shooting issue, like your follow through is a symptom, your hands, a symptom, like uh, where your head is a symptom. But if you can't be balanced, well, the balance is the problem. So then we have to start there. As a soccer person, you, you'll know this term, but I, Dan and I have talked about it, put it in our newsletter, uh, body shape is like a key element. Like everything should be centered and like, you shouldn't have to like lean over to put your arm out that much. Right. Like yes. Jamie, Jamie Ben is, is someone I, I watch and I, I'm, he always is off balance. Like he's on his outside edge on the left foot as he's shooting. It's like, well, no wonder it misses the net left all the time. It's because he's literally leaning left. Like he would have to adjust his mindset to shoot for the right. Right. And yeah. And so that, that would be the problem there is that he's skewed to the right or to the left. Sorry. And that would be what you need to fix. You don't need to fix. Like there's no sense in working on, on his aim with the puck because that's not going to solve the issue of the, the balance and that he's always on his, his other, like his, the wrong edge. Like, and, and you don't get any power being on the outside exactly. edge when you're shooting. So, you, so like, there's so many problems be, from that. Yeah, you can't be fixing symptoms because it's just going to be a wild goose chase. Yeah. All right. So last question. We can definitely go further on a lot of these things and super deep on a lot of these things. But I uh, really appreciate your time. And you're, you're probably deep in research and coding and all the fun things. But uh, Yes, actually. <laughs> I've, I've probably done, I did 13 hours yesterday and like 10 today. Dedication. Love it. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. Somehow I, I find myself in the same way, whether it be like my actual job or hockey, like just grinding out 12 hour days just cause it, and it doesn't seem like that just time just flies cause you're having fun. But uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you like to use video versus in person and I'm assuming video is probably more important to you and breaking down frame by frame and seeing how that works. How do you, so how do you uh, use video? Well, in the midst of the pandemic, it's the only option. So there's that. Um, but what I'll do is, is uh, let's say, I, I mean, I can tell you what I did in New Jersey. So I was at every game, um, for obviously. And uh, what I do is I, I take notes during the game of, of just observations. Uh, not scouting reports or anything like that, but just observations. And then by the time I got back to my office at the end of the game, I'd, I'd have a bunch of stats available to me, millions of data points. And okay, does does the data match what my observations were? And if it does, then I go and I go, okay, I've, I've got something here and I need to take a closer look at it and potentially send this uh, up the chain, whether it's uh, to the coach or... Uh, like whomever. And, and then conversely, like if I look at the coaches ratings and uh, like, let's say a player got a, a two, but his metrics are second best on the team. Well then I'll go through and I'll look at it and then I'll fire it down and I'll say, Hey, like here's the discrepancies. And it, it, it just like, if the data doesn't match my observations, then it really intrigues me because I'm like, okay, what did I miss? I always assume that I have missed something. It is very rare that an algorithm data tracking software will be wrong. Like it's 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 very rare. So I think it, it opens doors and it opens um it opens your mindset. So for me, I uh, 
in person, I'll make my observations. Then I'll use the data. Then I'll go to the video and say, okay, um, this is, this is what I, I saw. Um, but now that I've, I've looked and I've gleaned, a, uh, an objective perspective, I need to take a, a closer look at, at these few things. Um, and, and then those are the things where I really slow it down. I'm, I'm looking at other options, potentially watching a play two or three times, um, looking at the stats behind that play. Like it's, it, it becomes uh, minutia, essentially, is, is what I use video for. And then I'll put it on the telestrator and, and all that fun stuff. So I'm kind of curious, maybe on if you're breaking down a player, their skill set, um, what they're doing. How do you use video in, in that sense? I'll watch the game. And first of all, does that player stick out? And uh, so like tonight, let's say, I'll watch Ottawa, Montreal, for example. Does... Tim Stutzler stick out for good or bad reason, or Elias Pettersson uh, in the Vancouver-Toronto game. And then when I go back and I watch video, I will specifically and only watch their shifts, and I have that available to me. And I will look at their shifts now that I have in the context of a game, whether they were good or bad, and I will look at potential difference maker points in their shifts where they either did or didn't do something that could have led to a better or worse outcome. So it's like, okay, you did this and you did it well, but if you didn't make this decision, if you didn't see this pass, or if you didn't have your feet angled this way, you would not have made this good play. You would not have been able to do this or whatever. And conversely, if uh, somebody like Elias Pettersson is struggling right now, I would go back and what I'd do is I would take video of when the player was like peaking Uh, So that's probably like last season right now for him. And then I'd take video of now and I'd watch and I'd, okay, what differences can I find? And then you show the player that difference. And I find that when they can see the differences themselves, they actually commit it to memory and then they understand like what they need to do. So when I'm evaluating players, I go, okay, I know what their peak roughly is. And this is how they're playing now. What is different? Or... Like, I remember when Taylor Hall was, like, winning the Hart Trophy on that point streak. My job, essentially, was make sure that Taylor continues to to perform. And so I went back and I was like, okay, what is Taylor doing now that he wasn't doing at the beginning of the season that is leading to all of this success? And there were a few things that I can't go into, but um, it's just things like that. It's, it's a ton of comparison work. Wonderful. Well... Uh, excited to have you back a second or uh, third you're time. Asking her for a comeback episode—that's hilarious. I haven't even gotten through the first one yet. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, seriously, we can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, like Greg was starting to say, we barely scratched the surface, and uh, you know we could go all day. So we really appreciate your time, and uh, hope to catch up with you again down the road. Down the road. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, thanks for having me. I I love that uh, I got to kind of dive into this stuff because it's like too nerdy for all my friends. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand our hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at hockeysarsenal.com. Uh, you, from there, you can find some resources and some 
options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, you can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.